0: You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we chat with John McNulty, a Silicon Valley legend who has been a driving force in the technology industry for almost 40 years. He started his early career at Intel before moving on to be the CEO and chairman of four other companies in the software, hardware, networking, and communication industries. Today, Mr. McNulty serves on the board of directors of four private technology companies, and is also a member of the University of Notre Dame College of Engineering Advisory Council. We talk about what has changed the evolution of Silicon Valley over the last 40 years, how important is culture to a company, is Facebook a security threat, and what does the future look like for connected devices, IoT, and the importance of cybersecurity, and much more on this week's episode. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Thank you for taking the time out of your busy schedule to help educate our listeners on some amazing progress, innovation, and things that have just happened in Silicon Valley over the last 40 years. It's a pleasure to be here, Sean. Thank you for having me. So, John, you've been a part of the evolution of Silicon Valley. Could you take our listeners on a journey of your time here, and what has changed from the beginning
1: to now? First time I saw Silicon Valley, it was in 1970, and it was on a visit as part of the merger of Honeywell Information Systems and General Electric's Information Systems. And probably most of the people listening to this Never knew that those two companies were in the computer business. Honeywell was the number two company in the computer business in 1970 behind IBM. When I came to Silicon Valley, it was probably one one one-hundredth of the size it is now relative to office space or maybe one five-hundredth of the space. It's mostly fruit orchards from Gilroy to almost Palo Alto. Amazing, amazing change over that last 49 years, if you will. I moved to the Bay Area in 1975 to be the sales manager for Honeywell Information Systems in Northern California. I started to really see the change. I wasn't smart enough to take advantage of it and buy property, some of those orchards in Sunnyvale and San Jose and the like. It was starting to accelerate at that point. And the changes between then and now have been truly staggering the infrastructure that has been in place really since the late 70s and 80s to support and foster the startup community, innovation and, and great ideas sprang up. And looking back, it all happened very, very quickly and continued to evolve. I think back, it was a progression that was impacted also by the technology changes that we saw from Monstrous mainframes in the 70s to mini computers and then the personal computer, mobile devices, and what we have today. Everybody's walking around with a smartphone in their pocket that has orders of magnitude more computing power than the computers of the biggest computers of the 70s. When you think about that, it's fascinating to project because Moore's law has held pretty constant since Gordon Moore first postulated it until today. There was a saying at Intel computing and where it was going that bits, bytes, and bauds would be free. And if you think about what you might want to do, think about that aspect being effectively free. So millions of instructions per second and transmission speeds that we have today and storage being effectively free.
0: What were some of the companies that you either worked for or ran? Talk about kind of your journey.
1: My first job was 13 years and nine months spent at Honeywell Information Systems, starting on the East Coast and ending up after my stint in San Francisco and and Northern California in Phoenix, where I was responsible for large systems marketing worldwide. I went from Honeywell to Intel, and with no disrespect to Honeywell, I learned more about running a business, in my view, how a business should be run and Driven to move forward at any one year I spent at Intel than the entire time I spent at Honeywell. And it was, you know, the difference between a East Coast Midwest company in mainframes and a startup in Silicon Valley, which Intel was in the 70s. I went to work for Intel in 1979, and that was a four-year stint. I left Intel for 10 years and then went back in 1993 for another four years. The thing that I learned from Intel in both stints, was not only the way to run a business, but a culture and a process that scaled. When I first went to Intel in 79, as I recall, it was about a $200 and $250 million company. When I left four years later, it was $800 million. When I went back in 1993, it was $8 billion. And in 1997, when I left, it was $20 billion a year. The incredible thing about that time span was the culture that I walked into in day one in 1979 was the same culture that the company was using and to not only manage the business, but manage their people and drive the business unchanged from 79 to 97. And I think it was a key to success. It's the only culture that I've ever seen in the industry that scaled. A lot of companies run into trouble as they grow. The management challenge of running a company at fifty million dollars is very different from running it at two hundred and fifty million, which is very different than running it at a billion. But Intel was able to scale from a couple hundred million to twenty billion in the same processes, culture, disciplines, etc. And that, to me, really stuck, so that it was. An incredibly valuable lesson of the, in my opinion, the importance of developing process and culture that is consistent and scalable. Now, would this
0: process still apply to today's tech companies and the rapid growth that some of them are seeing? Or is this more of a time dated lesson?
1: I personally believe that it absolutely applies. Now, culture is really, I think, about the value system of a company how it's going to be measured, how goals will be set and measured, and how people will be evaluated. And that's what boiled down to its base content was what Intel's culture was. It was a way to manage the business and manage the people and establish expectations. We used the MBO process, management by objective, measurements being key results on each of the objectives. And it just was easy to say. You either accomplished something or you didn't. You were successful or you weren't.
0: Can you go into even more detail about this culture that was at Intel?
1: The thing when I left the first time in 1983, I went into a situation where it was going to be very rapid growth of a uh, information processing business, word processing and the like. In 1983, 84, 85, we were hiring a huge amount of people. Or huge, relatively speaking, into the company because we went from basically almost zero revenue to over 100 million a year in two years. And it was labor intensive. So we were hiring salespeople, running a class, a two-week class once a month for salespeople, hiring maybe 16 to 20 salespeople. In each class, we were hiring, obviously, a lot of software engineers and the support for them. And we established what I called the concept of culture, Concept was the acronym we used to explain at a top level what our value system was to people coming into the company. And obviously, I started explaining it beforehand to the team before we got good enough at it to then start this process. Concept was an acronym, and I always said, you know, C O N C E P T. It starts with the P and the T. People is what the P stands for, and teamwork or team is what the T stands for. The first C is commitment. The O is ownership. So we would talk to people, and this is something direct out of the Intel Bible, if you will. And Dr. Andy Grove would say, Sean, you own this. That means you're the owner. You're going to be held accountable. And everybody else understood you were the owner. So when you asked for something for that project, they knew that you were the guy whose feet was being held to the fire and they had to support you. So ownership, the N was, uh, I had the letters on a sheet of paper, and I can't even remember who, it was all but the N. And I was staring at it and somebody walked into my office and I was trying to develop this. And this guy says, you know, if you added an N, you could spell concept. And I said, concept, the concept of culture. He said, well, what would the N stand for? And I had a do it now cube on my you know paper holder on my desk. IBM had a lot of trash and trinkets on the desktop. I can't remember who put the do it now cube there, but I had invented it, if you will, that little cube uh, at Intel. Now, it stands for now. So, C O N, the N is now. The second C is commitment. You know, commitment means if you're the owner, if you're part of the team, you're going to get it done. You're not going to make commitments you can't, to a reasonable degree of certainty, deliver on. And you're going to do everything in your power to deliver the results that are expected. So, we've got C-O-N-C. E is excellence. And I think that's something that winners compete with themselves. You keep getting better. You strive for excellence. And that was something that I thought was really important.
0: After Intel, could you talk about your next few ventures?
1: When I left Intel the first time in 83, I went, went to a company. The company was called CCI. It was based in Rochester, New York. They had about 95% of the 911 business worldwide. It wasn't 911 in other countries, uh, you know, for information, but they had that business around the world. It was an amazingly successful company. They saw that at and was likely going to suffer or be broken up. Uh, the baby bells were the result of that vision. Uh, not CCI <laughs> caused it to happen, but they were planning for it, and they thought, they needed some other business that could grow and that business was word processing. Wang was the leader in word processing. CCI started uh, had bought a small company. I was offered the opportunity to take that small company as a project and let's see how fast we could grow it. We grew it from zero to hundred million dollar plus run rate a year. It was quite successful, a great word processing product. Sadly, I wanted to pull off a merger. The merger never happened, and some changes caused me to go to another job, and I became the president CEO of ISI, Integrated Solutions Incorporated, here in San Jose. Integrated Solutions built very high-performance workstations. That company we sold in, it was in 85, we went in and we sold it in 87 to a competitor. I then went to not a pure raw startup, but close to a raw startup to be the CEO and try to grow that into something big. and. We did a pretty good job. We were a little bit before our time. That was Rose Communication Systems. We were using the unlicensed spectrum to build a wireless PBX for offices. While at work, there was a great lesson learned. And the lesson learned was phone systems were installed in offices at cost almost in those days. The phone companies that installed the office systems made their made their money from what moves ads and changes which were very expensive and very profitable with a wireless system you eliminate it moves ads and changes so it was great for the customer but not very great for the people that had all the connections the distribution channel if you will that we needed to rely on they weren't too interested in eliminating moves ads and changes We sold that company to Allen Telecom, and some of the product is still in use. It wound up being utilized for communication systems more than anything else on islands in the Philippines. It was used to connect islands to the main network by Allen Telecom, who did point-to-point high transmission systems. So suddenly the village had a phone system, and it was all connected to the rest of the world. So interesting the way things evolved. ISI and Rose, almost 10 years away, and I went back to Intel, had another great four-year run. The job there was to, in 1993, if you go back and look at the history of the microprocessor world, if you will, the electronic news and computer world had headlines like the PowerPC Consortium about to put the toy on the desktop. The toy on the desktop was Intel in its place, because the PowerPC consortium was Motorola making the chip, Apple having the desktop computing, and IBM utilizing that same component in servers. So this was a real threat to Intel. At the time, in 1993, Intel had probably 80% or more of file and print servers in the enterprise computing world. And about three to four percent of application servers. My job that I was charged with and along with, you know, a bunch of other people, what we wanted to make happen was to have a enterprise server market share like we had file and print servers, and not allow the PowerPC consortium to dominate it. And I can tell you, four years later we had reached seventy five percent of enterprise servers. It was a great success and a very profitable success for Intel.
0: So with all these different jobs and roles, did you experience any difference or have any tips about the right people to manage a company, their backgrounds?
1: You know, that's a great question, Sean, and I, I'm not sure that there's any one particular answer. I mean, great techies have been very successful in managing businesses. Witness Andy Grove. Andy was you know, a PhD, and I guess it was chemistry, if I remember right. He certainly wasn't marketing and sales guy, but he did an incredible job. I think it depends people that have been wonderful salespeople have done great jobs managing companies. So I think you have you know, two extremes there. CFOs have done great jobs managing companies and lawyers have too. But there's not a lot of consistency, perhaps. I think it depends on the individual, you know, the skill set that the company needs. You know, the one thing that I believe is that TEAM is an acronym to me, and it's together, everyone achieves more. You got to get people pulling in the same direction, and they got to care about the result. They got to have skin in the game. I love that Silicon Valley grew up with a culture of just about everybody should have stock in the company. Some have more than others, you know, stock options. Uh, I think that gets everybody united around, hey, we're all, quote, as shareholders, you know, we need to really care about that. You know, you got to have somebody I think can make people understand that we're in this together. We depend on each other and we got to be pulling in the same direction. We're not nearly as effective as we can be. Tell me more about this evolution of the startups in
0: Silicon Valley and what you've seen over this time.
1: I think it's changed a little bit in the sense, the speed at which things happen with CCI to create a word processing. There had been, before CCI bought the first piece of software that started the company, they had been working on that software for two or three years. And then CCI started to put a lot of energy and effort and money into it. Today, with the development environments for both hardware and software and networking that exist, things happen so much faster and, frankly, so much easier. We can do things as a result that would have taken a decade Can be done in a year, maybe less. That's been a huge change. I think the people involved in the venture side of things initially were very experienced people who had been there and done that successful. And now they were going to use some of their riches and the riches of people that believed in them to invest in others. And they could provide, I think, some very valuable leadership, if you will, and guidance. I think the venture community has not as nearly as many of those guys that have been there and done that today as they had in the 70s and 80s, and maybe even the early 90s. Today, I think there's a lot more MBAs, smart folks that really haven't managed a company, met a payroll, been the leader of an organization. And I think that has been a major change. And it's not to say that that's wrong, it's just different. You know, there was always mergers and acquisitions and, and the like. I think today it occurs much faster, much quicker. And then sometimes with not nearly as much diligence as should be done because in some companies have so much money to deploy and they can take risks that might've been un- unacceptable in prior times.
0: So with that, are you saying there might be too much venture capitalist money now in the Valley?
1: You know, I don't think there's too much, but I think that some of the corporate investments, I think that some of those are, let's cover all the bases just in case, rather than this has got to work and we're going to invest because this is going to be a great success.
0: And then throughout your time, other than maybe the lack of experience, has the mindset changed
1: at all? I don't think so. I think that everybody was and still is looking for success. They've always had in Silicon Valley a huge infrastructure of support that is unique to Silicon Valley. The universities, the venture community, the sheer numbers of startup companies and people with startup experience and companies that are organized to do prototypes and design work and layout boards. So that's made it a very special place. It's also a place that has its challenges today, you know, with the cost of living builds an interesting challenge, I think, for people running companies. In May of 99, I took the job of a CEO, president and CEO of Secure Computing. It was a public company, had gone public in 95, held the record for single most largest percentage of increase in day one of trading. You know, it was an internet darling in 1995. And in 99, it had reached a point where it was in trouble of the board members, Bob Flansberg, was a very successful gentleman that ran Novell as chairman and CEO, was an executive VP at HP. He was on the board of Secure. He and I had known each other. He reached out and I wound up the new CEO at Secure Computing. Point about Secure Computing, Sean, was that the company was pretty broken in 1999. Was doing about $20 million a year in product revenue, another eight to ten in services. It was to a very specific market, the intelligence community and Department of Defense. I was taken right away by the quality of the technology team. It was incredibly competent, capable technology people. At that time, the company had moved its headquarters to San Jose, but 90% of the company was in Minneapolis, St. Paul, Minnesota, and that's where all the talent was. To this day, I believe... I think I did a good job, a really good job, of writing the ship, if you will, at Secure Computing and taking a broken $20 million company to a $300 million run rate nine years later when we were acquired in 2008. But to this day, I believe 90% of those people had been in Silicon Valley instead of Minneapolis-St. Paul. Nobody could have saved it. They would have been poached. Headhunters were camping out in parking lots to poach people in 99 and 2000. And, you know, we had a whole lot of good people. in Silicon Valley would have been under financial pressure even then. And they would have succumbed to the siren song of a much bigger salary. The Midwest work ethic saves secure computing as much as I did. And I'm concerned that Silicon Valley is going to suffer. Now, the Googles and Facebooks and LinkedIns of the world can afford to Pay whatever they want for talent, but the smaller companies can't. And I think that's the biggest challenge that Silicon Valley faces today. The goose that laid the golden egg can't get enough great people because there's too much pressure here. So you'd mentioned a lot of
0: resources that are here in Silicon Valley. Would you say that that's kind of the main reason of all the success of the companies coming from Silicon Valley, or possibly that there could be other things such as a community with? classless, judgment-free zone that is pretty typical here, I'd say, versus many other places in the world where there's so many immigrants, so many people from other cultures, and everyone seems relatively accepted here.
1: How important
0: is this, or what are your thoughts on this?
1: I think it's incredibly important. I mean, we've attracted talent to Silicon Valley from all over the world, and it is classless, I think, inside of the technical community. If somebody's you know a great whatever at their job, they're respected, and you know, we don't have at least I'm not aware of issues where tensions build up. That makes a difference. People are focused more on the prize in Silicon Valley than anything else. The prize being you know my stock options are going to be worth a lot of money, and the, the guy that's running the company, it's going to hopefully successfully get everybody focused on the prize. You know we got to deliver, and good things will happen. Don't worry about exactly what you're going to make. Worry about delivering a great product and good things happen.
0: How is being a CEO of a tech company now
1: different than when you were in that role? My last job ended in 2015, You know, so it's not that long ago. I don't think it's very different. It's different today than it was when I first became a CEO. My first CEO job was ISI. I think the biggest change is things happen faster. You have to perhaps be more aware of the issues in today's world so that you don't fall into the trap of doing something that maybe in the 60s was considered just fine and today is a no-no.
0: And with all these roles as well, many of the companies that you're a part of were acquired. Many people at home will never go through that. What is that like?
1: It's bittersweet. The two most recent were secure computing and Interact Public Safety. Secure computing was nine years. I knew everybody in the company by first name and we had maybe 700 people. It's bittersweet because it's something that's family feeling. That's what I try and establish as part of that culture. Teamwork and people are first, respect for the individuals and helping them achieve what they want to achieve on on an individual basis and what we want to achieve collectively. So when it's acquired and you're no longer in charge, it's like giving up your baby. It's part of life to have your kids grow up, go to school, and move out and get married and have their own kids. And I think it's a little bit like the kids are no longer here, empty nesters. So it's a little bit of that for sure. When Interact Public Safety was acquired, it was, okay, wow, we got this done finally. And frankly, nobody made any money, including me. But we found a home for some very good technology and some very good people. And I felt good about that. Everyone's a little bit different, I think.
0: Were most of these mergers or acquisitions more pushed by the investors, or did you see that as the right path for the company?
1: In the case of secure computing, we were a public company. It was—I remember the dates correctly. It was September of two thousand eight. Bear Stearns just went under. Everybody, stock got hit. We got that small tech companies got hit very badly. We lost more than half of our market cap between Lehman and Bear Stearns. And that downward slope in 2008, the whole economy was tattered. The company's stock price was one hell of a bargain. And McAfee came in and said, we want to offer you a 40% premium, all cash, for, for the company. Myself and no one else on the board wanted to sell the company. We felt like we had a company that was far, far, far more valuable than that, but we'd still be in court being sued if we didn't take the 40% premium all cash offer. (laughs) There's a whole lot of bitter in that suite. (laughs) Rose Communications, uh, we'd gotten to a point where enough had been invested, and we now clearly understood the problem that none of us understood when we started the distribution channel didn't want to distribute our product. So we had an incentive to sell it because we didn't have investors that wanted to put more money in. Interact was a turnaround situation that we turned around, stabilized, but we again learned about a market. And the public safety market is a very interesting, to my way of thinking, a very unique market because it is controlled by politics. Interact had more than a third of the counties in the US as as customers. And there's, if I remember right, 3,165 counties in the US at that time. But we had, I think, 1,300 and change counties as customers, along with a number of large cities, state contracts, state police contracts, and a number of states and all the rest. But that was a classic example of I went into it saying, wow, this marketplace is so fragmented and so much money is being spent on trying the service the Emergency Management 911 system. It's incredible. And after I was in it a while and asked a lot of questions, from a technical standpoint, I had a presentation that I gave at a number of trade shows in that industry and said, look, uh, the cloud is the, the way we should be doing this. We could have three or four cloud data centers in the country. We'd capture incredible amounts of information that's being lost now. From a statistical standpoint and what's truly happening in the country, and it would cost three to five percent of what we're spending today in all those counties. It doesn't make sense from a political standpoint because those counties, to use that as an example, typically the 911 center reports to the county sheriff. 98 percent of the sheriffs in this country are elected officials. And so the 911 centers have a whole lot of political appointees and people that knew the right people to get a job. You don't want to close, if I remember right, there was almost 6,600 dispatch centers in the U.S. As soon as we started to understand the dynamics, we did put up some clouds. We very successfully put up a cloud in the state of Maryland and another in the state of Indiana, which was quite successful for the Indiana State Police and other Indiana state organizations in some counties. But trying to get states to cooperate was a challenge backed off of have three data centers or three cloud centers in the country to maybe we can get three or four states to cooperate in a in a region that's a tall order isn't going to get accomplished anytime soon john you sit on several boards
0: what is it like to be on the board of a tech company
1: i enjoy it but it has its challenges i think when you're on the board you have to respect the ceo Because he's the captain of the ship, and you can't tell him how to do his job unless he's really screwing up. You know, you can offer suggestions and be there as a sounding board for him, and I think that's very important. The type of CEO who I think is most successful is one that uses his board, and I believe this when I was a CEO, and I believe it today. If you use your board, you keep them informed, ask them for their thoughts and considerations of some of the problems you have to wrestle with. I think you're gonna be a whole lot more successful. A lot of CEOs listen and a lot don't. And some will give you you know, pure lip service, but I think they're lost when they're not using their board. And if they don't have a board that can contribute to them, that's another problem that the board and the investors need to deal with.
0: John, are there any organizations or groups that you are involved with or have a passion for that you'd like to mention a little bit to our audience.
1: Thanks for the question, Sean. I have a tremendous respect and admiration and and love for our military organizations in the U.S. Things like Wounded Warriors, Gary Sinise's effort to build housing for them, the USO, those are things that, you know, I just get a thrill being able to be supportive of. And there's lots and lots of great charities out there. I just think these people that protect us and allow us to live the life we live, allow Silicon Valley to exist, if you will. Relative peace and security give so much, and they deserve our support and respect.
0: John, thank you for taking the time. And I'd also want to thank James Cape for making the introduction. And we look forward to having you in the future and continue the conversation about cybersecurity and what's going on there that people around the world would love to know. Big pleasure.
1: Thank you, Sean. Appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a
1: professional.